Please clip my car on your tie. Two fingers width below the knot. Is that better? Is that right? Does it matter which fingers? No. All right, you ready to study God's word tonight? I, I need to give you a clarification. My wife and I were talking about my sermon on the way home. We always do. The reason you do is I asked her, I said, well, did I make my point? Did, I understand, did you understand what I was saying? Did it make sense? You know what I mean? I don't check my theology with her, even though I could. She's a smart gal. But anyways, I want to make sure you understand. My last point that I was trying to make is the goodness of God is an incredible thing. Amen. And when it's all said and done, what he did for, his, for Job to restore everything was just incredible. And for those daughters, unbelievable. Unbelievable. You know, one of the things that the book of Job's a hard book. I don't know if you've ever studied it much, but it's a hard book. And when God begins to get to the point where he's going to let Job ask him questions about what's going on. See, that's Job's big point in 23. He says, if I just had an umpire, if I just had somebody that I could plead my case to and would sit down and listen to both of us, man, that would be great. You know, that's what he, but he said, when I try to talk to God, God's never around. He's hiding himself from me. Okay, I'm not trying to preach my sermon again, but anyways, when it gets down to the end of that thing, one of the things that God does, he says, all right, I'll tell you whether or not I'll talk to you based on whether or not you can answer these questions. And he gives them a series of like 90 questions for like three or four chapters. And he begins to ask them question after question after question, which there is no answer to humanly. You know what I mean? There's just... God asked him questions like, where were you when I laid out the constellations? You think I need to explain myself to you on such a great job I did on doing the world, seriously? And basically his point is going to be, if I did explain it, you wouldn't understand it anyways. That's his point. One of the things that God does, he says, what about, what about the rain, Job? The treasury of the rain, the treasury of the hail, the treasury of the snow. He said, do you understand all that? He said, I make it rain in the wastelands where nobody lives just so there can be plant life to get a drink. That's the kind of God I am. You understand what he's saying? I am an incredible God. I am a good God. I am a kind God. I am a generous God. And you're going to gripe at me about your suffering? You get what his point is? I don't have to put rivers in the desert, but I do. Is it a great thought? Some incredible things in the Bible. Would you agree with that? I think there are. Anyways, we're talking about suffering, and we've been dealing with that in First Peter. When you talk about First Peter, suffering is the name of the game. It really, truly is. He's got a bunch of saints we read in chapter 1 that were scattered all over that Roman uh, region, and he talks about these poor saints that are scattered, persecuted. And he begins to deal with all the reasons why they're going through these persecutions and all the heartache they're suffering. And when you talk about that, uh, the question I have in my mind is, when you look back over your life, and I'm old enough to do that now, you know, I'm, I'm guarantee you I'm, I'm past the three-quarter spot. <laughs> uh, I, I, have, I may be at the last week or two, who knows? You know, you never know. But when you look back over your life, let me ask you questions. What places in your life did you grow the most?
Whenever I ask that question, almost without exception, the person will mention pain, loss, or deep, unexplained suffering in their life. And they say, that's where I grew the most, right there. But when suffering rains down against us, our tendency is to think that somehow God's withdrawn his umbrella of protection, that hedge. <laughs> I was thinking about preaching on that on Sunday, but anyways. Uh, that hedge of protection that God's abandoned us. He's basically, we're, we're going through times that are painful, and we just struggle with that. Philip Yancey analyzes that, and in his book he says, Christians don't really know how to interpret pain if you're pinned against the wall in a dark, secret moment, many Christians would probably admit that pain was God's mistake. He really should have worked a little harder and invented a better way of coping with the world's dangers. Now, even if you feel like that, it doesn't stop the pain, does it? Pain just kind of rages on. And, and the amazing thing is we have heartaches and we have hardships and in life you get a good friend and somebody you love and care about and they love and care about you and they die. That's hard, isn't it? Friends aren't a dime a dozen. It takes a long time to really get a friend. And, and then we grieve that loss and we say, I'm not going to be vulnerable like that again. I'm never going to have a friend that's that close. And then we, we have problems because now we're lonely. Isn't that weird the way life is? And, and we deal with that whole pain of loneliness. And we wonder at times, you know, I wonder, if, is there hope? Well, Peter says, absolutely, there is hope. And the great thing about this book, when you read this apostle, he never ever laments the fact that people he's writing to were suffering pain and persecution. And he doesn't really even offer advice on how to escape it. Instead, he says, face suffering squarely. And he tells us, he says, don't be surprised by it. God's given us some promises that he'll provide benefits for enduring our hurts in life. And he says, even when life is dreary and overcast and rays of hope even happen during those times. So let's get something straight. You know, when we talk about suffering, a lot of times we think the devil is the one that kills us all the time. And, and by the way, he does. I, I hope you recognize from the book of Job this morning that God's permission was paramount to Satan being able to do anything in Job's life. He had to ask permission every time. And once he got permission, he began to do those awful things to him. And as you read the scriptures this evening, the Bible says in verse 8, chapter 5, verse 8, he says, Be sober, be alert, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour, whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. Now, did you ever read the scriptures and think about how many verses talk about Satan making it hard on us? Paul writes in 2 Timothy, excuse me, 2 Thessalonians chapter 5, 2 Thess, I'll get it right, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 8, my brain's slow. He basically says, I wanted to come to you, he 
tells the Thessalonians in chapter 3, he says, I want to see you. I really do want to see you. I can't wait to come visit you. And when he gets to chapter 2, he says, uh, Satan hindered me. I wanted to come, but I couldn't get there. Satan hindered me. You ever think about that? You ever think about the fact that Satan loves to hinder the child of God? I was doing my best this afternoon. That, that, that thought just kind of haunted me, and I thought, what is that verse talking about? How did Satan hinder the Apostle Paul? And it, I looked at the context of where he wrote it. He was working in the church at Corinth, and the church had immeasurable amounts of problems. And he said, you know what? I think Satan maybe hindered him in through that church. He's in Corinth trying to get that thing straightened up and flying right. And man, it just seems like every time he gets a one step forward, he's knocked three steps backwards. And it's just one problem after another in that church. Maybe that's the way he hindered him. And then I thought, well, you know, that second book of Corinthians talks about that Paul had these great revelations and in order not to be proud, God says, I'm going to let the messenger of Satan buffet you. Now, wouldn't that be horrible? How'd you like God give the messengers of Satan the ability and permission to buffet a child of God? And he says, man, he said, I prayed about that thorn in the flesh. He said that messenger came and gave me that thorn in the flesh. And I don't know what the thorn in the flesh was. They debate that all the time. They talk about bad eyes. Maybe he had bad eyes. They talk about him being on that first missionary journey and was on the Pamphylian coast and he got that eye problem from the mosquito bite that he got and from then on he always had real problems with his eyes. When you read the last part of Galatians, he writes about I wrote this one by my own hand. Do you see how large the letters are? I, I wrote real big because I can't see well enough to write small. Paul normally had somebody that traveled with him, and he had an amanuensis. That's a big $64 word that means he had like a male secretary that would, he'd dictate to him the book. And when he got down to the end of the book, he'd write his name at the end. He said, I didn't really write this. I told the guy what to write, but notice I signed my name. I, I, you know, that was cool. That's what I did. Because it was such a pain to write. Maybe that was what his what his deal was. Some people say, well, you know, remember when Paul was first saved and he went crazy in Damascus and was preaching everywhere and they, they wanted to kill him and so they decided he had to get out of Dodge so they put him in a basket and they, they sent him down in a fish basket from the wall and they dropped him and he broke his back. He, he fractured some of his vertebrae and from then on Paul was like a hunchback and they, with great pain. That's his first missionary journey. And from then on, the rest of his life, he walked in pain because they dropped him in that basket. I don't know. I don't know what his thorn in the flesh was, but God says, I let a messenger of Satan come along and give you that thorn. And you prayed about three times asking me to remove it, and he said, I wouldn't do it. He said, it's better for you to be humble than proud. By the way, I do believe Satan messes with you. I don't know if you know about this, but I'll just tell it to you. Second, first and Second Chronicles is God's view of what happens. First and Second Kings, First and Second Samuel is basically man's view of what happens, and then Chronicles tells you, for example, how God saw it. And Chronicles tells you things about those stories that the writers don't tell you because they don't know the spiritual warfare that's going on. For example, in Chronicles, you'll never read about David's adultery. Never. You know why? Man, I love this. Because when he was forgiven, God forgave him and he forgot it. And God never brought it up again. Boy, isn't that great? Isn't God magnanimous? By far more than I am. I may not say it, but boy, it's still in there. Come on, you know what I'm talking about. I trust you about as far as I can spit. 
and I don't spit very far. How many understand what I'm saying? But if you read that story, you get in 1 Chronicles 21, and David has that horrible experience where the death angel comes and begins to slew Israel. And the Bible says that Satan provoked him to number Israel. You say, Pastor, what's the big deal about that? David was counting on the number of his army more than the power of God. And he said, Satan provoked him to do that. I was reading Nehemiah chapter 4 this afternoon, and it doesn't necessarily say this, but a lot of the writers make note of this. They said that when Nehemiah chapter 4, when Nehemiah's building, he says he's got two guys that are painting his rear from day one, Sanballat and Tobiah, and they swear that Sanballat and Tobiah were Satan's henchmen and that he used those two guys to be a pain in Nehemiah's neck through the whole book. Now, regardless if you believe this or not, let me be really honest with you. There is a real-life devil, and he does hinder the child of God. Amen. Now, I believe that. Uh, it may not be the, the sufferings of Job in your life, but I do think every once in a while Satan gets involved in our lives, and he is a real pain to deal with. You listening to me? So as we look at this passage tonight, we need to get some sober instructions for battle tactics. Uh, Dwight Pentecost, in his book, Your Adversary of the Devil, he compares the tactics of a physical battle to those of a spiritual one. Listen to what he writes. He says, no military commander could expect to be victorious in battle unless he understood the enemy. Should he be prepared for an attack by land or ignore the possibility that the enemy might approach by air or sea, he would open his way to defeat? Or should he be prepared for a land or sea attack and ignore the possibility for an attack through the air, he would certainly jeopardize the campaign. No individual could be victorious against the adversary of our souls unless he understands the adversary, unless he understands his philosophy, his methods of operation, his methods of temptation. Paul warns the Corinthian church, he says, don't ever be ignorant of his devices, his schemes. The Greek word there is the idea of, don't ever be ignorant of his methodology. It's a great verse. So when we talk tonight, we need to have some somber instructions about how Satan operates. So let's look at his identity. Let's look at his style and his purpose. The original term here that, that, that Peter uses, and by the way, how many of you remember that there was an occasion when Peter was so bold to tell the Lord that he shouldn't go to the cross? And he looked at him straight in the eye and he said, get behind me, Satan. I mean, boom. <laughs> and then how many of you remember the time when he wouldn't pray and he says, you just don't understand, Peter. Satan wants to sift you like wheat. How many want to bet that maybe Jesus could see the invisible realm? He could see what Satan was doing. Yes or no? And we're totally ignorant of that, aren't we? By the way, if you see Satan on a regular basis, don't come tell me after the service, okay? <laughs> I'd rather just be ignorant and stupid. <laughs> Fat, dumb, and stupid is about 90% of my life, and I've done okay that way, okay? I don't want to start being that smart, okay? But when we talk about Satan, the Bible, if you look at it, it says that Satan is our adversary. Be sober, be vigilant, your adversary. Now, that word adversary is an interesting word because it's a word that talks about your opponent in a lawsuit. <laughs> we got sued years ago in another church, another time, another place. And there was a group of people that were suing the church to get rid of the pastor, the trustee board, and the deacons. 
They went to Superior Court out in California, and uh, we used to talk about that lawsuit. You got the sewers and the sueys. <laughs> That's mean, isn't it? We had about 50 sewers in the church. We spelled it differently. This isn't a friend, this isn't a playmate. An adversary is somebody you don't mess with. You don't joke around with them. You don't go out and have a Coke after the service is over. Satan's constant relationship with the child of God is always an adversarial relationship. Will you believe that tonight? Make no mistake about it. He despises us. He hates what we represent. He is a relentless adversary. He's our opponent in battle, in the battle between good and evil, between truth and falsehood, between the light of God and the darkness of the underworld. You see, he is our adversary. And notice the Bible says, our adversary, the devil. I, I can't imagine a Christian not believing in the devil. It puts it so well. Peter identifies this enemy boldly without equivocation. The devil comes from the word diabolos, diabolos, which means slanderer, accuser. And it fits perfectly in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, where the Bible talks about that Satan stands before the throne of God and slanders us. By the way, that's why you don't ever, you don't ever want to get in a slandering of another Christian. They don't need any help. Satan does it all the time. Why would you do his work for him? Amen, Pastor. Smile at me. You get what I'm saying? You don't want to be working for the wrong team. Amen. 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 You see, he's the accuser of the brethren, and the Bible says he does it night and day. Night and day. It's an incredible thought. Not only does he accuse us to God, but I really believe this, and I can't absolutely prove this, but I think it's true. I think that, honestly, Satan accuses us to ourselves. You ever kind of, you know, you're doing pretty good, and all of a sudden there's a thought in there that comes through your mind that says, man, you are worthless. You call yourself a Christian, but you're not much of one. It would kick it again, man, kick it again. <laughs> Just like Congress kicking the can down the road. <laughs> Sorry. I can't resist. I think, honestly, that some of the self-defeating thoughts that we have come from the demonic realm. And I don't think he could read our minds. I don't believe that. But I do think that he can give us stimuli. He can... Put things in front of us that makes us think a certain way. And I think Satan's good at doing that. I really believe that. Bible says there's therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Jesus Christ. By the way, no condemnation means no condemnation. Amen. And when you feel condemnation, let me help you with something. That doesn't come from, uh, from the Holy Spirit. He convicts. There's a difference between Holy Spirit conviction and satanic condemnation. Amen. Listen to me. Listen to me. You say, Pastor, how do you, how do you know the difference? Because the Holy Spirit never convicts you of a sin that you've dealt with. If you confess it, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So once you've dealt with that sin, he never brings it up again. He has divine amnesia. But Satan didn't have any problems reminding you about it. He can tell you about stuff you did when you're 16. Come on, smile at me. He can. Now, furthermore, 
when we talk about Satan, look at his style. He walks about. Notice this. Some translation, I like this. It says, he prowls about. The devil's a prowler. He, he comes by stealth. He works in secret. His plans are shadowy, and he never calls attention to his approach or to his attack. That's the way he operates. And then the scripture says he's like a roaring lion. He's a, he's a beast that howls and growls. And the Bible says he seeks someone to devour, to personalize it. Put your name in there. He wants to devour Phil. Put your name in there. He wants to devour you. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. I don't think he's playing around. I don't think it's a joke. I, I don't think he walks around in a red suit with a pitchfork. I don't. Scripture says that he can transform himself into an angel of light. He can look more like a preacher than the devil. A.T. Robertson writes, the devil's purpose of the ruination of mankind. Satan wants all of us. It's wise for us to remember when we travel. It's wise for us to remember when we don't gather for worship on Sunday. It, it, it's wise for us to remember that when we're out of town. It's wise to remember that when we find ourselves alone for extended period of time, especially during those vulnerable moments that he prowls. He stalks us. He waits for strategic moments to catch us off guard. By the way, that's an adversary. Now, what's his goal? Well, the Bible says to devour us. Let me put it in Phil Martin English. To eat us alive. Man, that's pretty tense, isn't it? He wants to eat us alive. Well, they've given you kind of a real-life picture of who Satan is. That's no pitchfork there. He don't dress up in some Halloween suit. Folks, what he is is he's godless, he's relentless, he's brutal, and he's the adversary of our soul. we got to remember that. So what's our response? What do we do because of that? Look at the way the Bible reads. It says, he walks about... Uh, seeking whom he may devour. And then he says in verse 9, whom resist. Now let's go back because there's a couple of words I want you to catch in verse number 8. He says, be sober. How many want to bet he's not talking about drinking there? He's not talking sober versus drunkenness. No, sober means alert. He says, you need to be sober. You need to be vigilant. By the way, I don't think Satan likes chapters and or Bible verses like what we're reading tonight. I don't think he likes to have in the light exposed to who he is. And I think that's what Peter's doing. He says, hey, bottom line is you need to be alert because our prey walks about like a predator. You better keep your eye on him. You better be alert, Warren Rearsby writes, Satan's a dangerous enemy. He's a serpent who can bite us when we least expect it. He's a destroyer, an accuser. He has great power, great intelligence, and a host of demons that assist him in his attacks against God's people. He is a formidable enemy, and you should never joke about him. You should never ignore him or underestimate his ability. We must be sober. We must have our minds under control when we come to conflict with Satan. Great words. The devil's great hope is that we'll ignore him. The devil's great hope is that we'll kind of write him off like he's some kind of fairy tale. Some kind of comic strip character. You see, that's exactly what, is, what he wants because 
uh, a, a prowler doesn't ever announce when he's coming, does he? If a prowler had called me tonight about, oh, five o'clock and said, hey, we're going to be over your house about 6.15, I promise you I'd have been home. But they never call you when they come to break into your house, do they? No, the Bible says that Satan is a prowler. His great hope is that, man, turn the scriptures off. Turn the searchlight of God's word off. Don't put the light on me. I'll do my best work in the dark. Especially when you're not watching. When you're not sober. When you're not alert. And by the way, I think about 90% of Christians just go through life totally oblivious. Totally oblivious. He says, be alert. Then he says, respect him. Be sober. Be vigilant. If you're going to defeat the devil, you've got to be alert to his presence and not fear him. But you'd better respect him. Kind of like Alan Hardy respects electricity. <laughs> Guarantee you, he has a healthy respect for electricity. All you got to do is get shocked about once. Yes or no? I remember years ago, old Jack Woodring came in and his keys were in his hand and his fingers were black and his keys were melted together. And he says, golly, he said, that sign out front there has really got a kick to it, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, Jack, that's got 220 where you stuck your key in. You better respect it. We kind of act like, you know, Satan's out there, but what's the big deal? Wearsby writes, a part of the soberness included in not blaming everything on the devil. Some people see a demon behind every bush and, every, and they blame Satan for their headache, their flat tire, their high rent. What it is is true that Satan can inflict physical sickness and pain See the book of Job. We, we have no biblical authority for casting out demons of headache and demons of backache. One woman phoned me long distance to inform me that Satan had caused her to shrink seven and a half inches. While I have great respect for the wiles and the power of the devil, I still feel we must get our information about him from the Bible, not from some, some experience we have. Now, be careful. I had a lady one time said she had a car and the car was, had a demon in it. You really think that demons inhabit inanimate objects? You really think your washing machine has a demon in it? Really? Be sober, be alert, be calm, be watchful. Moffat in his interpretation says, keep cool, keep awake. That word cool there means a calm collectiveness. It's the idea of, of, of a professional and an athletic contest. The best in the game stay cool. They stay calm, collected, and clear-headed, even in the last two moments, few moments of the game. You pass them the ball, and everybody knows they're going to hit the shot. Kind of like Jerry West a long time ago. You better be alert. You better be vigilant. Our adversary comes without announcement. And to make matters worse, he comes in counterfeit garb. He's brilliant. You'd better respect that brilliance. I hear sometimes Christians say, man, the Christian life is thrilling. I'm ready to take on the devil. You better look out. 
It's a dumb statement. Billy Sunday, great evangelist of Dave's gone by, was an alcoholic, and he got saved and gave up the bottle. Got saved the Pacific Garden Rescue Mission up in Chicago. Billy Sunday would go up on the stage and he'd say, why don't you come out of the ground, Satan? Why don't you come up from hell? We'll go a couple of rounds. By the way, that sounds really cool while you're preaching, but did you know that Billy Sunday, all three of his kids were drunkards? Maybe the devil couldn't get him, but the devil sure got his kids. Be sober. Be vigilant. Our adversary is a murderer. He's a liar. You better look out. So the Bible says we respect him. We resist him. After being alert to him and respecting him, we need to resist him. We don't run scared from the enemy. You see, the Bible says that we resist him in the faith. Kenneth Weiss writes these words. He said, the Greek word here translated resist means to withstand, to be firm against someone's onslaught rather than, rather than to strive against that one. The Christian would do well to remember that he cannot fight the devil. The latter was originally the most powerful and wise angel God ever created. He still retains much of that power and wisdom. And at a glance down from the pages of history, we'll look about one today. He'll, he'll, he'll easily show. While the Christian cannot take the offensive against Satan, yet he can stand his ground and he can face his attacks. Cowardice never wins against Satan, only courage. Good words. Kind of like that closing line there. Once we have enough respect for Satan's insidious ways to stay alert and get ready for his attacks, the best way for handling is strong resistance. Scripture says we resist him by being what? Firm in the faith. The faith there is the word that would be the body of truth that we believe. It's not saying I work up my faith. No, it's the faith, the faith that we learn from the word of God. It's the body of truth that the Bible teaches. He says you got to know something about the Bible in order to resist Satan. You have to be firm in God's word. That's what he's saying. Kind of like Jesus was when Satan attacked him. What did he do? Every time, Matthew chapter 4, what did he do? He quoted the scriptures. As it's written, as it's written, as it's written. You know why most of us, to be quite honest, we have such a hard time with Satan? We don't have the word of God memorized. We don't know what to say. That's why you should start getting some verses up here that come out here when you need them. You see, the scripture says that the word of God is strong, it's alive, it's active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And the only, only weapon you have besides standing strong is do it in the faith. Do it with the word of God. I, I, I just want to warn you, you don't ever want to do it in your strength. You're no match for the devil. He'll whip you every time. You say, Pastor, how are you strengthened? It's in direct relationship to this book right here. If you're not reading your Bible, if you're not memorizing God's word, if you're not meditating on the scriptures, you're going to a gunfight with a knife. It won't work. Remember what Ephesians chapter 6 says? He says, finally, brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole arm of God that you might be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. It's mockery 
for us to think that we have any strength when it comes to Satan. Come up out of that hell, devil. We'll go a couple of rounds. Better look out. Better look out. Well, look at verse number nine. He says, be sober, be vigilant. Does that say it's five minutes to seven? Is that what that says? All right, I'm already out of time. Look at that. Let's keep going. You resist steadfast in the faith, knowing, notice this, that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. Now, can I help you with something? If you think Satan's only out to get you, you're sadly mistaken. The Bible says he's out to get us all. And that if you have Satan after you, there's a lot of folks that do. It's the same affliction that all Christians face. I love the way James writes. He says, if you're, if you're going through temptations, hey, by, by the way, it's common to man. Boy, the devil's really been wearing me out. And me too. And you. And you. And you. And it's been that way since Adam and Eve. You listening to me? And that's what his point is. So what should we do? Well, notice what happens. When we start getting in God's word, notice what happens. The Bible says, when we resist him, that we'll be steadfast in the faith, and the Bible says that these afflictions are accomplished in us, and the scripture goes on to say in verse number 9 and 10 that bottom line is we're going to find out that look at the last part of 10 he says that after you've suffered a while he's going to make you what what's the word perfect will you write the word mature in your bible say pastor what happens when you when you handle it right what happens when you handle satan right what happens when suffering comes and you handle suffering right god says it matures you and notice, not only does it mature you, the Bible says it establishes you. It strengthens us. It makes us perfect. And he says he strengthens and it settles you. Now, I got I to gotta close, so let me, let me finish it up by just giving you a couple of reminders. All right? Now, this isn't... I pretty much covered the scriptures. Let me, let me kind of give you a, a couple of conclusions. Maybe this will help. Maybe this will be like, you ever put a string around your finger to remember something? You ever done that? I can't find the string. I can't remember where I put it. But anyways, I don't try that anymore. First of all, let me say this. Never confront confidence in Christ with confidence in your flesh. You know, I really seriously have thought I could handle some things. You know, one time in my life, I made the statement, I would never do that. Boy, did I eat those words. How about you? That cockiness of the flesh is really tough, isn't it? That's Peter. I don't know about the rest of these guys, Jesus, but boy, I'll tell you one thing. I'd never, I'd never run out on you. I'd never betray you. That's that cockiness of the flesh. You see, confidence in Christ is what we need. But let me give you a second one. Always remember that suffering is temporary, but the rewards are eternal. Let me read you what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. He says, for which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish. How many understand what that means? Our outward man, I just, now I can't see you. You know why? My eyes are getting bad. And, and, and if you talk to me, will you talk louder? Because I'm struggling on hearing you too. And, and by the way, right in here, I got a pain in my back. That thing just kills me. And I'm getting tingling in my feet. That's neuropathy coming because of that stinking diabetes. I get those sharp pains in my feet. And every once in a while I go, wow. 
You say, Pastor, what are you saying? The outward man is perishing. Come on. Some of you look at me like I'm the only perishing one here. How many understand, how many understand the verse? Are we perishing, yes or no? Yeah. He says the outward man is perishing, but he says the inward man is getting renewed day by day. Isn't that a great verse? The, the old feel on the outside that you look at, man, I got less hair on my head, more hair on my back, and my ears, and my nose. It's growing on my nose now. It's getting tense. And I'm so stinking blind, I can feel it, but I can't figure out where to get the tweezers to pull it. I'm serious. Every once in a while, I'll get my wife and say, can you pull that hair out right here on my nose? I said, I can't see it. <laughs> it's terrible. The outward man is perishing, but listen, the inward man's being renewed day by day. And then notice what he says. This is talking about suffering. He says, our light affliction which is but for a moment, works for us a far exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but the things that are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things that are not seen are eternal. The classic example of somebody that did it right was Jesus Christ. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, it says, For the joy that was set before him, he endured he endured the cross. That's what he's talking about here. You say, Pastor, why should you say no to the flesh? Why should you say no to Satan? Because bottom line is, that's an eternal thing. That's something I'm going to meet in heaven somewhere down the road. Temporary things like the flesh, that doesn't cut it. But man, that stuff that's spiritual, that lasts forever. There's probably no better illustration of what I'm talking about than what C.S. Lewis writes in his book, The Screwtape Letters. If you haven't read that, that's, that's definitely worth reading. It's not bedside reading, but you need to read it. It's a great book. Uh, he talks about Satan's strategy, and he, he uses incredible imagery. Screwtape, a senior devil, corresponds with his eager nephew to educate the fledgling devil for the warfare against the forces of the enemy, and that's God. Like all young tempters, you're anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. Can you imagine being smart enough to write something like that? But do remember, the only thing that really matters is to the extent to which you separate the man from his enemy. Listen to these words. It's a great quote. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that the accumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is a gradual one a gradual one that one with a gentle slope that's soft underfoot without sudden turnings without milestones and without signposts. He said the way you get them is just ever so slowly. By the way, I really believe Satan uses that on us. If Satan came to us tonight with some big gross sin, we'd say no. But that's not the way it comes. It's incremental. By the time you figure out that you haven't been sober and vigilant, you look at your life and you say, God have mercy, have I slept? Yes or no? That's the way he fights us. A little here, a little there, a little here until finally when you wake up to what he's doing, you go, wow.
come on, I can wait for an amen until my ears fall off. Is that right? Yes or no? Yeah. Yeah. I'll give you an illustration. I have to walk. And I'll be really honest with you. I hate walking. They kept talking to me about, you know, you're going to get into this exercise and you have endorphins flowing and you're going to really love it after a while. I've never reached that spot. <laughs> now, there are people that do, just not me. And in the recent days, the temperature outside has gotten cold. Now, I'll be really honest with you, I'm a California boy, 100%. And it takes me a while to acclimate. And so for the last about a week and a half, once it started getting cold, I kind of go, daybreak every day I go out and walk. Now it's about 40 degrees. <laughs> and I lay in that warm bed and I said, Jesus wouldn't walk in that kind of weather. <laughs> Come on, smile at me. And that's kind of where I've been. And so this week as I got dressed one morning, I put my belt on and I thought, that gum, that rascal's tight. Getting tighter by the day. I hadn't walked in about seven days. And so I did my walking. I went and walked around my neighborhood. And to be quite honest with you, Going down the hill was fine, but coming back up, it's amazing how much that got so much steeper. By the time I got to the top, it was <sighs> Some of you are laughing at me in the back, and I don't appreciate that. Just thought I'd let you know that. Some of them teenagers, they, don't, they have no propriety whatsoever. One day you're going to be there. So this week, I've been getting it again. I thought to myself, man, isn't it amazing how that works? Only laid off for a week. I gained four pounds. My belt got tight. And it about killed me to walk 2.2 miles. Come on, you get my illustration? That's the way it is spiritually, too, folks. I hope you realize that. I hope you realize that. You got to be sober. You got to be vigilant. Your adversary notices everything. Everything. Let's pray. Lord,